The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Uh, sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. As we kick off this Christmas week of broadcasts, I just can't believe that we're at the end of 2019. I can't believe that another year has just sped by, and every uh, year um, gets faster and faster. I don't know what it is about it. Time just speeding up like that. And we talk about time travel and time quite a bit on this show, but nobody ever explains why it gets faster as you get older. But it does. It gets a lot faster. So uh, as we reflect on the year behind us, I hope everybody has an opportunity to spend the next few days with friends, family, people they love, and uh, an opportunity to um, enjoy these holidays. I, um, I, I wish that for everybody. Um, we have some pretty exciting news here, and I've kind of been teasing it for a while. There is um, a, a major shift going on in the media marketplace. And as somebody who has been in radio for 30-some years, not just in radio, but I've actually owned over 30, well, about 30 radio stations over the course of my career. And uh, a fabulous business that I fell in love with when I was a very young child. Uh, but it's changing. Everything is changing, and it's changing rapidly. The days of getting into your vehicle... And turning on the local radio station, um, they're still here. However, when you get in that vehicle now, you have all sorts of options for listening. And as the uh, media marketplace, particularly for this type of uh, program, changes, we have made a very, very conscious decision to change with it. Um, one of the things that happens when you have a uh, syndicated program is you have, uh, you know, an agreement with a syndicator and you're working under their rules and their requirements. And while it's fantastic, uh, it also is restrictive. And we've decided that moving forward, starting with 2020, that we are no longer going to um, be affiliated with uh, Westwood One Radio Networks. As good as they were to us, we've decided to move on and move to the future of media, which is an all-digital delivery system. So if you're listening on a radio station right now, Beyond Reality Radio uh, will not be heard on that station after this week. The way you're going to have to listen to Beyond Reality Radio, because nothing's going to change as far as program delivery or content or any of those things, just the way you listen, listen will change. The way you're going to have to listen is to either listen on the YouTube stream, which is where many of our people do listen. And the way you find that, by the way, is to go to YouTube and search for JV Johnson. And when you find the channel, subscribe to it. It's, it's free. There's, nothing, there's, no, there's no pay. There's no fee. Um, just go to uh, YouTube and subscribe. The other way to listen is, is a downloadable podcast. And the podcast is available through all major podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, Stitcher, um, you know, all of them. So it's easy to find there as well. And of course, when you listen as a podcast, you're not listening to the live program, but you are listening to the program nonetheless. So again, um, we have decided that it's more important for us to um, maintain creative control. This will also give us an opportunity to control our breaks, how many, how, and their duration, it's the future of media, 
And we're also, and this is kind of a, 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 a bit of a major change for those who watch currently or listen currently, we're going to be changing the time of the program. Starting January 6th, Monday, January 6th, we're going to start the program at 11 p.m. Eastern instead of midnight. So an hour earlier. I know it doesn't sound like much of a change, but when you're used to tuning in at midnight, that will be a bit of a difference. So as things uh, progress here, um, they can only get better, and we're excited for these changes because it kind of takes some shackles off of us, lets us do a little bit more of what we wanted to do to begin with. And moving forward, it's going to free up our ability to be creative. So we're excited about it. Again, though, it's very important if you listen to the program on a radio station that you recognize that it won't be there after this week. And if you want to continue to listen, please go to the YouTube channel, search for J.V. Johnson, subscribe to the channel. You'll be able to listen to it live that way. Or you can find the podcast version of the program on any major podcast distribution system like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. So, um we're going to be we'll be mentioning this over the next few days so that everybody's remembers and is continued uh, continuing to be updated as to what's happening. But we're quite excited about it and the prospects and the uh, possibilities that it affords us. So anyway, welcome to the Christmas week here as we get ready to do some ghost storytelling. Our guest tonight, Colin Dickey, is an author and a speaker, and he will be talking about the age old tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas. He's also written books on ghosts, aliens, and the unexplained. And the idea that we used to tell ghost stories at Christmas time, it was part of what you did on Christmas. It's kind of faded away. I don't know that anybody or at least many people do that anymore. But it was many, many years of doing that. We're going to find out why people did it, what they, what type of stories they told, and why it stopped. The best ghost story of all, in my estimation, is... A Christmas Carol, right? Dickens. I mean, the, the, the Scrooge story is timeless. And the lessons in that story are amazing. But it's a ghost story. It is a Christmas time ghost story. And I think that's a good example of uh, how powerful they can be. So we will we'll be talking about that with Colin Dickey tonight. I will remind you that tomorrow night and Wednesday night, which would kind of technically be, uh, not technically, but it would be Christmas Eve and Christmas Day nights, uh, we will have best of programs. And then Thursday night, Gary Williams will be with us. We're t- t- kind of taking a departure from some of the stuff we've been talking about. And we're going to chat about Marilyn Monroe's death. The question is, was Marilyn Monroe's death a suicide? Gary Williams will talk about his new book, which kind of answers the question for me. It's the title of the book is The Murder of Marilyn Monroe. Um, so that'll be Monday night's program. No, I'm sorry. That'll be Thursday night's program. Then Monday, James Willis will be here, author and paranormal researcher. He'll present a potpourri of topics, including uh, things about Ohio weirdness, from ghosts to cryptids, urban legends. And we'll talk about the infamous Hangar 18 at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. A lot of great stuff coming up on the program here. And just to answer questions that I see kind of jumping around in the chat room, um, the show, starting on January 6th, will begin at 11 p.m. Eastern, not midnight. And it will end at 1 a.m. Eastern, not 2 a.m. We're, we're shifting it ahead an hour. Starting an hour earlier, ending an hour earlier. Um, and then um, that'll start on the 6th. In the meantime, again, if you're listening on a radio station, um, please know that after this week, the program will no longer be on the radio station. 
we are now going all digital. And we will be on YouTube and will be available as a podcast. If you want to look for the YouTube channel, which we hope you do, go to YouTube and search for my name, J.V. Johnson. When you find that, if you subscribe to the channel, it's free. and There's no fee. Uh, you'll be alerted when we go live. So it's exciting times, and we're looking forward to a great 2020 for this program and for all of our listeners. All right, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll bring our guest for the night in. Again, we're going to be talking about the age-old tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas time with Colin Dickey. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Not long ago, it was Christmas tradition to tell ghost stories. In fact, it's referenced in some Christmas songs, telling ghost stories, you know, telling scary ghost stories. I'm not even sure what that line is. And I was trying to figure out what song it was, and I'm I'm blanking on it. But it is a lyric in a song because it has been true. Colin Dickey is our guest tonight. Colin is an author and a speaker. His website is his name, colindickey.com. And he's got a book out called Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places. Merry Christmas, Colin. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me on. So tell me a little bit about you and your interest in ghosts and ghost stories. When did all that start for you? Oh, man. So um, so I grew up in San Jose, California, which um, I don't know, people may know as the home of the Winchester Mystery House. Sure, is, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the idea that Sarah Winchester, the, the heir to the Winchester Rifle Fortune, uh, became convinced, uh, supposedly, uh, this is all supposedly, you know, that uh, she was being haunted by the ghosts of anybody who'd ever been killed by a Winchester rifle and, and was told by a psychic to um, build a house that was never finished. And so she moved out to San Jose, bought an eight-room farmhouse, and then began sort of um, building this kind of elaborate uh, uh kind of labyrinth of a mansion. And so that was, you know, that was the, the house down, you know, uh, figuratively down the street from where I grew up. And I, I think, you know, um, as a kid, I was just really, really fascinated and um, entranced by this idea of this, you know, this weird, large, endlessly uh, complex Victorian mansion. And, you know, I was a kid who grew up in, you know, an identical tract home to everybody else. And so, you know, this this thing, I think, really kind of captured my imagination. So I think, you know, from a young age, I was, I was really interested in even more, you know, like this idea of like, you know, what, what makes a haunted house and, and, and why are, you know, some houses, why do they just feel weird? Why do they feel different? And, um, you know, so I, that kind of fueled this curiosity that, that propelled me to kind of want to understand better how, um, you know, how we talk about haunted houses, how we talk about ghost stories and, you know, 
kind of what they what they do to us kind of culturally. And so so anyway, so that's that's how I ended up kind of really interested in ghost stories and and particularly uh, Christmas ghost stories, which became a thing I, I got fascinated in a, a few years ago. We have a short segment here, so we don't have much time before our next break. But I want to just ask you about the Winchester House because, you know, we've all heard the stories as you just related them. Do we know, do we have any uh, hard proof or evidence that that is, in fact, what Mrs. Winchester was doing with that house and that's why she did it? Um, we do not. And that's the thing that I found really fascinating. Um, you know, with with history, we, we often know a lot more about, you know, rich people than we do about, you know, poor people, because rich people, they are literate, they have letters, they are well documented. And one of the weird things about the Winchester um, story is that we actually don't know a whole lot about Sarah Winchester. We don't have a lot of, of documents that, you know, you might expect from from somebody of, of wealth like that. But what we do have, I found out, you know, once I started actually kind of trying to dig into the history, what we do have doesn't actually match the the legend that surrounds her. And I, I, I found that kind of interesting, like what, you know, if this stuff isn't exactly as true as maybe I thought, you know, growing up and, you know, why do we keep telling the story and why do we, you know, why do we love this story? What's so, you know, why is what's so compelling about this, this story? If it's maybe not actually entirely factual. Just to wrap up the Winchester house conversation, do you know anyone Colin that uh, went to the West Westchester house with, I don't know, I guess what we would call ghost hunting equipment and caught any evidence of a haunting there? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. And not to my knowledge, um, you know, I know, you know, it's because they, they do tours there regularly and, and they're pretty tightly controlled. I don't know that you can just, um, you know, go kind of right. uh, free, free through the house. So, I'm sure you know they've done some kind of special things. I mean, you mentioned some kind of professionals who had done stuff, but um, I don't think that it's just kind of a thing open to the public. And I think they kind of frown on that, gotcha. um, unless you know they kind of are in control of the show. So, uh, not to my knowledge, as far as I know, I, I haven't heard of anybody doing that. So you developed a curiosity and an interest in ghost ghost stories, and at some point along the way, you recognized that telling ghost stories around Christmas time was a tradition. It was a tradition that uh, lasted for a long time. Doesn't seem to be quite as popular now, I guess. Uh, but tell us uh, when that first uh, became something that you had heard of and you started to look into. Yeah, I mean, I think the first time I really noticed it was uh, rereading uh, the Henry James story, The Turn of the Screw, you know, that kind of classic ghost story. Right. Um, and, and it sort of opens with, um, a bunch of people sitting around on Christmas Eve telling ghost stories. And, you know, it's kind of this weird thing where, you know, I just, I mean, like like you, like a lot of people growing up, I I did not associate ghost stories with Christmas. I associated them with, uh, you know, Halloween. But, you know, it, it, then you realize, I mean, the most famous Christmas story is a ghost story. And, you know, likewise, the most famous ghost story is a Christmas story. And that's Charles Dickens. A Christmas Carol, you know, which is about Scrooge being visited by three ghosts. And, um, you know, once you're kind of kind of aware of it, then, yeah, then you start to see things. I mean, you had mentioned, um, I think before you had mentioned that song, uh, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. I think that's the one. That is the one, yeah. Uh, 
where they've got the line, you know, there'll be scary ghost stories is, you know, kind of one of the, uh, one of the things that you're going to associate with, with Christmas. And so, yeah, so <clears throat> I got really interested A, in, in where this came from and B, kind of why it stopped and why we don't do it anymore. And it seemed like, um, it was a thing that, uh, I mean, we kind of have Charles Dickens to think he really, um, he, he really, popularized a lot of traditions um, that we now associate with Christmas, but one of them was this idea of ghost stories told on Christmas, and, and A Christmas Tale wasn't the only uh, ghost story that, that he wrote um, based around Christmas, but it, uh, it was the one that became the most famous. Um, and, uh, you know, so he kind of he helped popularize this tradition that by the end of the 19th century, you know, particularly in England, but also here in America, um, was this idea that, you know, Christmas Eve, that was the night to tell ghost stories. That was when you gathered around with all your friends and you told the spookiest story you could think of. All right. So this is new to me. This this information is kind of new to me. I actually just watched the film The Man Who Invented Christmas, which is a dramatic adaptation of how Charles Dickens uh, came up with A Christmas Carol and what was kind of going on in his life and why he wrote it and how it was inspired. Um, I don't know how accurate it was. It was it's you know it's entertainment more than anything else. I'm sure it was based on some fact, but I had never heard that it was actually Dickens and maybe even A Christmas Carol that kind of infused this idea in popular culture of of the time that telling ghost stories was something to do. So are you saying it kind of started with Dickens? Yeah, well, okay, so if you go back further, um, uh, the the kind of uh, midwinter, you know, winter solstice is is sort of a time to tell spooky stories. Um, there's a line in the Shakespeare play, The Winter's Tale, which, you know, as its title indicates, you know, is a, you know, story told for winter, and, you know, some, one of the characters talks about, you know, uh, the winter is a time for tales of like you know goblins or spooks or something like that, and so so it, it does kind of go back a little further. Just this idea that um, you know it's it's in the dead of winter that's when you're you're kind of all huddled around the fire and you know everything is kind of quiet and still and it's dark and that's when you start to kind of bring out the ghost stories. Um, so that that is pretty old. That does predate Dickens, but I think what happens in the 19th century is that's when we start to kind of develop all the traditions that get wrapped up in Christmas, right? So the traditions of, you know, the Christmas tree and giving gifts and uh, charity and all that stuff, that all starts to kind of kind of manifest itself in, um, you know, the first half of the 19th century. And, and, and Dickens is, you know, I mean, as the title of that, that movie kind of indicates, you know, he's one of the main figures that really kind of comes up with these ideas of like, this is what, this is what Christmas should be. This is what everybody expects it to be. You know, like he, he puts out these, um, you know, these magazines around Christmas with, you know, filled with all these, you know, the fiction and these kind of traditions and all this stuff. And uh, Washington Irving is another one who's doing this, who's sort of kind of trying to kind of, kind of create from whole cloth this idea of what, what Christmas should be. So, so yeah, so he he is kind of coming up with different ideas for for these traditions, and and he kind of harkens back to these older you know traditions of of telling ghost stories in the middle of winter, and he you know just kind of you know fuses the two of them together and says you know well the the best time to do that is going to be Christmas Eve, and Christmas Eve is going to be the night when 
the goblins are out and the monsters are out and the ghosts are out. And that's when we're all going to gather around and tell these stories. Do you think A Christmas Carol, Dickens' work, is intentionally a ghost story? Or do you think it is uh, a product of the story he wanted to tell? He needed to use ghosts to deliver the messages that were uh, intended to be delivered to Ebenezer Scrooge to make a point. Oh, no, it's totally a ghost story. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, and it's it's scary, too. I mean, I, it should be. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of adaptations over the years. But, you know, I mean, the, the whole thing of the ghost of Christmas future, I mean, and, I, you know, I don't know about you, but growing up as a kid and watching those things, I mean, that was always like, <laughs> it was kind of the best part and also yeah. the most terrifying part. You That's know, right. it, was the, it was like when when the stuff got real, you know, was when, when the gross Christmas future sort of appeared and everything got sort of somber and crazy and weird. And so, yeah, it was, you know, I, you know, I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, what, why do we tell ghost stories, right? Like what is the, what is the point of a, of a ghost story where, you know, it's, it's always about, um, you know, this kind of vision from this other place or this other land, you know, and it, it, it is sort of meant to unsettle us and kind of make us kind of rethink, what we're doing here on some level, at least, I mean, traditionally that's how it's been, you know, in literature and film and stuff like that. So, so as that started to take off as a tradition, as people started to decide to want to participate in this idea of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve around Christmas time, was there any particular type of ghost story that was preferred or was it all fair? I think it's all fair. I mean, I think in the way that we, we now associate that, that, uh, tradition with Halloween. I mean, I, I think it just translated really well to to Christmas and and particularly Christmas Eve. I mean, your whole family is together. You're all kind of gathered together around, you know, the hearth or the tree or whatever, and then you're having hot cocoa or you know brandy or I don't know I don't know whatever people drink these days. Um, you know, and you're just kind of all together. And um, you know what what better thing to do than to you know tell stories and and try and kind of creep people out a little bit or, or unsettle them a little bit or just kind of, you know, kind of tap into that kind of dark vibe that's going on outside the windows and the snow's coming down and the wind's whipping up and all that stuff. Like, that's just, I don't know, it's just kind of cool, right? Like, that's just like, I don't know, it beats, uh, you know, I don't know, background <laughs> stories about, you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or <laughs> crap like that. I don't know. That's me. That's me. I'm, you know. <laughs> You might have a few uh, million kids that would disagree, but I, I, we, who, yeah, I'm well, not going to argue. Maybe when they get a little older, they you know um, uh, keeps the holiday interesting. Do you think the idea was to make people more appreciative of what was around them and what they had? Uh, when you tell stories like ghost stories, you know, it makes you maybe appreciate life a little bit more. Uh, I mean, sure, and that and definitely, you know, that's what Dickens is doing in, in a Christmas Carol. But I mean, again, I mean, you look at. Um, you know, something like uh, Turn and Screw by Henry James, and that's not really about appreciating life. That's just about being completely creeped out, right? And so, you know, yeah. like, so, it, you know, it, it quickly kind of jumps the tracks. If if Dickens felt, and not all of his one, not all of his Christmas stories, his Christmas ghost stories are that um, uh, kind of motivated with a, you know, a, a uplifting moral at the end. I mean, there, there are other ones that are, are kind of more straight ghost stories, and, um, Maybe that's why they they aren't as well known, but but certainly um, you know uh, turn and screw and and other things sort of quickly becomes a different uh, the 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 need to have a kind of uplifting moral 
that reminds everybody about the true nature of Christmas. That you know, Dickens is interested in that, but but pretty soon people um, are are less interested in that than than they are in just kind of a good creepy ghost story. Our guest tonight is Colin Dickey. He's an author and a speaker. His website is colindickey.com. There's an E in Dickey, by the way. And his book is called Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places. Colin, you've, um, you've got other books as well. I mean, you've written about this stuff for a while. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've tended to, to write about kind of, you know, death and, and morbid stuff. My um, first book I wrote was, um, uh, it was, I made up a word called cranioclepty for Skull stealing, basically. Um, uh, Cranioclepty and the, the the story. There's another true story which I found totally fascinating about how several famous people's uh, heads were stolen in the early nineteenth, uh, late eighteenth century. Uh, Mozart, Beethoven, the painter Goya, uh, the composer Franz Joseph Haydn, a couple other people had their um, heads stolen by various phrenologists. Um, which uh, I just thought was a kind of crazy thing that nobody was talking about. So yeah, so you know, so I've uh, so that was my first book, and so I've I've kind of tended to gravitate towards uh, the the kind of morbid and macabre, and I you know the the ghost thing had been a thing I'd been really fascinated in for for a long time. So I was I was delighted, you could say, to uh, to have a reason to kind of delve deep into into the history of of ghosts and haunted places and, and, you know, what those stories say about us. So. Have you been a, a paranormal investigator yourself? Have you gone on some of these ghost hunts? Um, I, I wouldn't call myself a, a, a professional one in any way, shape or form, but I, I did uh, do a bunch, particularly when I was doing research for the book. So I, um, I spent a night in the, the Lemp mansion in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and um, uh, part of the whole thing was I, um, uh, there, there was a ghost hunt there before, and it, it was kind of sucks because I had woken up at, at 4 a.m. Uh, to uh, to fly out there, and then I got there and I checked in, but they because my my room was on the ghost hunt, I couldn't actually get into it until um, after the ghost hunt had wrapped at like midnight or something. So you know, I was I was in the room where I was supposed to be staying, you know, with a, a infrared camera, you know, looking for orbs and whatnot, but just desperately wishing that I could just take a little snooze but anyways yeah so um so i, I did a couple of those i um uh, i did some in, in los angeles too where uh where i was based at the time and um it was fun i mean it's you know it's cool to just kind of um you know i mean as i'm sure a lot of your listeners know to kind of experience uh, an older building that way and uh and kind of uh see what's out there what do you think the trend to um introduce ghost hunting television shows, which started basically in 2004. There were some prior to that, but really 2004 was a pivotal point when Ghost Hunters aired for the first time. Um, what do you think that has done to the perception of the idea of hauntings and ghosts? And also, what do you think it's done to these locations that in many cases were shuttered or about to be shuttered, in some cases even about to be demolished? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting um, you know, as you say, kind of how it changed these places. I mean, there's some places like the the Merchant House in um, in Manhattan, which is uh, one of the oldest, you know, still standing, um, uh, you know, brownstones or whatever from that period. And um, they had had stories, it, crazy stories of of ghosts, um, you know, for a long time, for for decades. And the the management more or less kind of didn't want to talk about it. They didn't, you know, they didn't really embrace it. Um, but, um, you know, as 
this kind of shift happened, you know, as, yeah, 2004, you know, um, people started to sort of look at older houses for the first time and say, you know, well, I don't know, is, is there something there? Is there, you know, what happens if we go out, you know, hunting? And um, merchant houses sort of gradually, but but more and more kind of embraced this community and kind of welcomed people in. And uh, they, you know, they'll do uh, ghost tours, uh, you know, throughout the year. And, you know, I, I was able to organize a, a private ghost tour with them. And, you know, we're basically, you know, if you get enough people, they'll just do one for, for you and your friends. And, you know, kind of now it, it, it's a way of, of keeping that building alive. And, I mean, you can imagine Manhattan real estate, how many developers are, you know, would love to get their hands on, on that place and knock it down for some, you know, atrocious new high-rise or whatever. And so, you know, it's I, I the, one of the kind of interesting things is how that ghost hunting community has, has become, in a way, almost kind of a preservationist community, you know, because, like, you know, it's, it's, right. it's folks who are out there kind of, um, you know, treating these these older buildings with that kind of respect that's actually kind of keeping some of them alive in that in that way. And I know a good example of that is the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, which, by the way, it was the inspiration for Stephen King when he wrote The Shining. Um, that particular location was about to close, and Ghost Hunters mm. did a couple of episodes there and introduced it to a lot of people, and there was a really uh, robust paratourism for that location for quite some time. They seem to have uh, moved away from the paratourism, at least as a focus, and now they seem to be thriving. So, you know, there are a lot of places that have had a renewed life because of this interest in a possible haunting or ghostly activity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I actually didn't know that about the Stanley, but that makes perfect sense. And, you know, the Lent Mansion is another one. I mean, as you, as I said, I mean, you can go there, you can spend the night, and then you can, you know, kind of do ghost hunting as part of your your uh, your package there, and they're they are they're really welcoming of that. And you know, yeah, so it, it is kind of a a way of of breathing a kind of you know, ironically, I guess, uh, breathing new life into some of these places, yeah. uh, you know, by uh, by going out and looking for the dead. Uh, we're talking with Colin Dickey tonight. He's an author and a speaker. His website is colindickey.com. Um, like I said, we'll bring him back in in just a second. I want to remind you to go to YouTube, find the YouTube channel, and subscribe to it. YouTube gives us an opportunity to stream live. We have a great chat room there that's active during the live broadcasts. Plus, there's an archive. Somebody told me last week there was only 400 videos there. I think there's more like 600 videos. Or maybe I, maybe I saw the wrong number. I don't know. But there's a lot of back episodes there of the show, like a couple years worth. So if you're looking for one of our old interviews, you know, something we did uh, a year ago uh, that you want to re-listen to or you want to hear for the first time, it's probably there on the YouTube channel for you. You just have to play it. Uh, it's a great way to uh, revisit some of our discussions that we've had over the last couple of years. Again, go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson. When you find it, please subscribe. Uh, hit like, do all the things that help us promote the uh, channel. More people, the better. We want you to join our global community. So, Colin, um, before we get back into the ghost story discussion, I want to know something about uh, an organization I think you're still a part of. Uh, it's called the Order of the Good Death. What is this thing? Yeah, uh, the Order of the Good Death was started by a friend of mine named Caitlin Doty, which uh, might be familiar to some of your readers, if not our viewers, listeners, whatever. Whatever you guys are. <laughs> um, all of the above. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and uh, if not, you, you should you should check her out. Um, she started years ago, God, and like almost ten years ago now, um, a YouTube series called Ask a Mortician. She's a she's a licensed mortician, and and she would 
answer your questions, including, you know, can I have my ashes baked into a cake to be served to my loved ones at my funeral? Um, uh, Short answer is yes, but you wouldn't want to. Um, Anyways, uh, so... Hold on. Before you continue, was that a real question? Did somebody really ask that? That that was a real question, and and for her video, it's, it's one of my favorite videos she's done. She... She made some fake uh, cremains um, that weren't composed of, you know, fireplace ash and little bits of ground-up ceramic and stuff to approximate what, um, you know, uh, human cremains would be. And then she mixed some of that into a Duncan Hines cake, um, which she proceeded to bake and frost and then ate. And you can uh, you can look it up and you can you can watch her facial expression as she tries to eat this cake with, um, you know, fireplace ash and ground-up ceramic in it. Anyway, yeah, so anyway, great, great, great... Uh, I, I don't great understand... Series, great person. Yeah, I don't understand... I don't understand what would motivate someone to want to do that with the remains of a loved one. Or was it the person themselves saying, after I die, I want yeah, my ashes yeah. to be yeah, baked right. into after a I cake? Die, then, you know, what I the heck? Baked into this cake, and then all my friends can, you know, kind of take it, oh. I guess, you know, kind of kind of take a little bit of me into themselves and I can, you know, kind of live on through them. I don't know. I don't know what, <laughs> you know, what people do, why, why people do the things they do. I, wow. You know, um, so, all right. Anyways. Yeah. So the order of the good death. Um, so, uh, um, it's really sort of devoted to kind of rethinking maybe how we approach end of life and, and death issues. And, you know, I mean, I think, uh, you know, for, for you and I of a certain generation, you kind of grew up with this idea that, your body would be, you know, shot full of chemicals to made made to be look as lifelike as possible, and you had this big elaborate funeral, and you know, a lot of money was spent on it and all that stuff. And um, you know, Kaylin has been kind of at the forefront, uh, kind of asking whether or not all that's necessary, and what if you want something, you know, a, a green burial where you're just kind of put into the ground to decompose and that kind of stuff. So she's kind of gathered up a bunch of us, you know, uh, writers and researchers and artists and other weirdos to kind of further that conversation along and kind of uh, continue to ask the question, you know, what, you know, what does it mean to have a loved one die and how do we process that? And what's what, you know, what are the, what are some options to make it sort of more personally meaningful for us than the kind of standard, uh, really expensive uh, funeral uh, package. So, that's how I got involved in that, and you know, again, my interest in everything from grave robbing to uh, to ghosts to you know various other stuff is sort of what drew me to that little group of people. Does uh, has the group uh, come up with any ideas that helps promote those that concept? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, and again, I mean, um, you know, there there are a lot of different things, and and one of the things that I find really interesting is you know, death is the thing that happens to all of us. You know, it's it's the one universal thing, but the way in which we approach death actually changes really radically from, from generation to generation. And so, um, you know, I mean, cremation was not uh, available until the late 19th century for, you know, at least in the kind of industrial way, although, you know, there were funeral pyres and stuff like that. But, uh, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't permitted by the Catholic Church um, until like the 1950s, you know, because it was, you know, your whole body had to be, you know, put in the ground and, you know, still in some sort of Jewish customs and other cultures, you know, there's, various different approaches to death. And so I think one of the, you know, one of the things I like to do is kind of, you know, kind of gather up these sort of uh, these past historical approaches that are kind of have been forgotten a little bit and, uh, you know, kind of kind of bring those back in the conversation. And uh, I mean, some of 
some of your listeners might, might know about sky burial, which um, is where when a loved one dies, you, you leave them on a high mountaintop to be uh, basically eaten by the birds, and then the birds will kind of take their remains up into the sky, you know, and um, in, in Japan, in some places, it's called a wind burial, again, where you kind of leave the, the corpse on the side of a mountain until the elements have reduced it down to just bones, and then you bury the bones afterwards. So there are, like, there are a lot of different ways that we have approached death in different cultures, different places, different times, and there's no real reason why it has to be, you know, one way or another way. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's a lot more, you know, changeable and variable than I think we, we think it is. You know, I, I haven't done much cringing uh, when I listen to my guests on a, th- this show. Uh, but when you said a sky burial where you take the corpse to the top of a hill or a mountain and you let the birds eat them, that made me cr- that made me cringe a little bit. I have to admit. Yeah, yeah, sky burial, right? It's a cool name for a, for something that is maybe a little bit like when you think sky burial. First, you're like, well, what could that possibly be? And right? Like, oh, oh, birds birds eat you, and then I oh, got it. Okay, okay, yeah, sure, <laughs> yeah. yeah so. <laughs> Wow. Um, um, yeah. Let's go back to this idea of telling uh, Christmas or ghost stories at Christmas time. Uh, Dickens made it popular. It seemed to have survived uh, the 19th century, I guess, into the 20th century. But at what point did it start to fall out of favor? Well, what what happened, particularly in America, um, where it, where it fell out of, well, I wouldn't even say sort of favor. It's more sort of just kind of forgotten, um, it, a little quicker than than in the UK. But what really happened was influx of Irish and Scottish immigrants who, who come to the United States and they bring with them, A, they bring with them a, a lot more um, of a kind of stronger brand of Catholicism, um, and B, they bring the, the kind of Celtic pagan traditions of, of Samhain, uh, the, the kind of fall harvest, uh, you know, holiday with its, you know, previous associations with ghosts and goblins and, and ghouls and stuff like that. Uh, which gets wedded to All Hallows Eve and All Saints Day, um, and and thus becomes you know uh, you know what we now sort of think of as Halloween. And so it was sort of it wasn't even like we stopped doing it on Christmas. It just we really started doing it on Halloween, and Halloween just became the default uh, holiday in America by. I mean, this started kind of maybe in the 1890s, but by the 1920s or so, it was it was uh, that was really the holiday. The holiday for ghosts became Halloween, and you know, Christmas just kind of kind of uh, got forgotten along the way. I'm trying to. I should have looked it up during the break, uh, but when this song "It's the Most Wonderful Time of the of Year" was written, I wonder, uh, you know, what was happening with this tradition at that point. Was it still popular? Uh, was it starting to fade? Um, because clearly, that song has to be a 20th century creation. Yeah, and on, I, actually, uh, I confess I can't remember when it was written either. Uh, maybe I should, I, one of us should look it up in the, yeah. the break. But yeah, so you know, so it's, it's sort of still lingering on, and there's still kind of vestiges and traces, um, even as you know, more and more um, you know, uh, ghosts uh, are sort of congregating around Halloween. Is the spiritual nature of Christmas itself does it lend itself to this idea of telling ghost stories? Um, or does I, it actually work I against guess. it? There, does it actually kind of work against it? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, I, I guess this is why A Christmas Carol, the Dickens uh, story, is, is such a, 
kind of timeless classic because it manages to do all of that in one really kind of nice felt package, right? right? Like it really is about using ghosts to get us to kind of rethink our relationship to other people and, and that kind of stuff in, in a way that maybe other ghost stories don't do in the same way. And maybe that's why, it, you know, even as the, the rest of the tradition has fallen away, we still love that story. Beyond Reality Radio is also available as a podcast. It's available on all major podcast platforms. It is the uh, the show that's edited down into a podcast version on the day following the live broadcast. That's also a great way to listen, especially if you have a morning commute or something, and either you want to revisit the show or you want to listen to it for the first time. It's a fantastic way to uh, to enjoy our guests and our discussions here. Again, available on all major podcast platforms. Just look for Beyond Reality Radio or Beyond Reality Paranormal. It's available under both names. Tonight we're talking with Colin Dickey. Talking about ghost stories uh, for Christmas time, Colin. Do you know any specific stories that may have been told year after year, other than obviously a Christmas Carol? Were there any that were uh, particularly favorites around Christmas time that seem to have made it into our our culture? Um, I do not know of any in particular, but um, there's a good anthology uh, by Jerome K. Jerome, um, which everybody should be jealous that they don't have a name like that. Um, <laughs> Uh, who who collected a bunch in um, 1890s, and it, uh, uh, man, and it's it's late and I'm blanking on the title, but, uh, you know, it reads a little bit like uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, um, that that anthology uh, that, you know, I and I, I imagine a bunch of other people can work with, uh, um, but it, you know, it's uh, it's it's an earlier one, and it, and it like um, some of these other ones, it's, it's framed around this idea of, of the kind of ghost stories that you tell on Christmas Eve, so I think if you're if you're looking to kind of start that tradition and you want to, um, you want to uh, uh, get a little head start, you might uh, just Google Jerome K. Jerome uh, Christmas Eve Ghost Stories, and that um, the name of that anthology will come up. And, and there's some there's some good ones there. I mean, they're you know they're light, they're fun, but they're all, you know they're 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 good times. Do you think with the reintroduction of some of these uh, what we would call folklore uh, creatures like Krampus and Bellsnickel? They're starting to see a resurgence and some attention in American culture anyway. Um, they may have always had that in the cultures that they're native to. Uh, but as this, those things start to come back to be part of our Christmas celebrations, do you think ghost stories are going to make that re-entrance as well? I hope so. I mean, I don't know. I mean, growing up, it was always like you, you, had, this, you had this one window. You had the month of October, and that was really the only time when you could like kind of really get into this stuff. And I think for, for a lot of us, I think, you know, people want to talk about this stuff year-round. So the more you can you can bring this stuff into Christmas, I think, you know, if that's your thing, I mean, you know, then it just makes the holiday kind of more meaningful and special for you. I mean, the same people, who, you know, really into Krampus. I mean, you know, I know friends who, who their holiday party is a Krampus party, and it's, right. you know, it's a little bit gothic, it's a little bit fun, but that's, a, you know, it's still the same thing. It's still... Friends getting together, sharing a little bit of community around, you know, this time of year when it's a little dark and cold outside, and and uh, it's just a little bit more gothic and strange than it is, you know, about you know white elephants and that kind of crap. 
Uh, we have to go to break here in, an, in another minute. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk specifically about your book, Ghostland. And I want to find out a little bit more about the places that you wrote about um, and their stories and their hauntings and uh, get a little more detail there. Um, but is it, when it comes to these Christmas ghost stories and these traditions, um, you know, these things ebb and flow all the time. And um, while Halloween seems to be almost, I don't know if it's quite eclipsing, but it's certainly catching up. To Christmas as a as a, a very uh, intensely celebrated observa- uh, observance. I don't know if I always call it a holiday, um, but do you see uh, Halloween as becoming on par with Christmas as far as celebration goes? I mean, I think so. Yeah, and I, th- I think that that points to you know what we were saying earlier. I mean, I think Halloween brings with it a bunch of traditions that I think we really value, including. You know the the way we're we're uh, again in the states we're starting to kind of incorporate elements from uh, Mexico's Dia de los Muertos and like uh, you know that kind of stuff and so I think we are a lot closer to the dead and you know ghosts and spirits I think than than you know popularly we like to admit and once Halloween sort of gave us a way to talk about it in Christmas too I think we we kind of latched onto it and I think that. That's a cool thing. We should, you know, stop being ashamed about it and just kind of embrace that this is part of who we are as a culture and that we're we're interested in these things. Let's talk about your book, uh, Ghostland, for a bit. Tell us what the book is about because it takes a kind of u- a unique approach to haunted locations and their histories. Yeah, so I, I kind of went around the country. So I went from um, you know Salem, Massachusetts, to New Orleans, Louisiana, Portland, Oregon, Los Angeles. Um, you know, pretty much anywhere they would they would let me go, and I just kind of went looking for, um, you know, some of the more famous haunted places, and you know, also some of maybe the kind of less famous haunted places, and I I you know gathered up as many ghost stories as I could, and um, I I guess I wasn't really interested in in answering the question, you know, is this place really haunted? Do ghosts really exist or not? I you know it's it's kind of like religion. It's kind of like I you either believe or you don't, and and you can't really convince somebody one way or the other. So I just I just kind of sidestepped that question altogether. And what I, I was interested kind of really instead was, like, why these places? You know, why um, why do all uh, haunted houses, why are they all Victorian mansions, right? Like, it's never like a mid-century modern house that's right. haunted. It's always a, like an old Victorian. Or, like, if you, if you close your eyes and you imagine, you know, a, a haunted insane asylum, um, you're going to picture something with a kind of tall clock tower in the front and these kind of wide sweeping wings that, that stretch out to either side. I mean, probably, maybe not, but, you know, it's like we have these kind of archetypes of, of what these kind of haunted places are. So that, that's what the book kind of does is it, it, it looks at, you know, haunted insane asylums. It looks at haunted prisons. It looks at haunted houses, haunted hotels. Spent a lot of time in haunted hotels, which was great, um, you know, and, and, and a lot of fun, you know, and just sort of like, you know what? What about certain structures kind of lend themselves to having this kind of feeling of that kind of uncanny eeriness that we associate with a, with a place that is that is haunted? So that's kind of a, a quick thumbnail sketch of the of the overview of the book, I guess. As you researched these places and visited these places and heard the stories of the hauntings, did you notice any patterns? that seemed to emerge like, you know, many uh, hotels that you visit had had uh, a particular story that seemed to be the same from hotel to hotel or anything like that? 
Yeah, of course, yeah. And, and you find those kind of um, throughout the country. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in, in, in the book that is sort of unique to the United States um, is this idea that a lot of the ghost stories that, that get popularly told in, um, you know, horror movies and stuff, they'll often revolve around um, the quote-unquote uh, haunted Indian burial ground, right? You know, right. that the place is haunted and then we find out, ah, oh, it's because it's built on an Indian burial ground. And, uh, you know, so I looked into that and kind of, what those stories kind of, you know, where they come from, how they kind of evolve over time, um, you know, kind of why they seem to be really popular and why they keep sort of popping up. So, yeah, you do start to see these kind of archetypes develop over over the years, and, uh, you know, some ghost stories sort of seem to be more prevalent than others, especially, you know, in a lot of these places, these haunted places, there's not a really good, clear history, right? You know, sometimes it's just, People saw a shape, or they heard a noise, or they felt a presence. They didn't really know what it was. And so, you know, if you don't have a clear historical record of what might have happened there, or maybe something happened, or somebody lived there, or whatever, you know, what what happens is we kind of fill in the blanks with some of these kind of tried-and-true ghost stories. So I, I found a lot of places where, you know, the actual paranormal researchers or the actual ghost stories were kind of vague, and then over time they just kind of kind of got kind of filled in with these kind of generic archetypes just because we, you know, we need some kind of story. We need some way to explain what's going on. As you put these together and, um, you know, started to look at them yourselves, did you have any experiences at all? I mean, you said that you kind of done some amateur uh, ghost hunting, if you will, uh, but in standing in the, staying at these locations, visiting these locations, did you see anything that lended you to believe that some of this was true? I, you know, I certainly, I was, I was in some places that, uh, that certainly kind of left me with a really weird, eerie, and unsettling feeling. Probably the most extreme of which was the, the Moundsville Penitentiary in Moundsville, West Virginia, uh, which is, you know, a building that is meant to make you feel awful. I mean, it was, you know, designed as a prison. It was designed to, to kind of convey a sense of gloom and melancholy on, you know, the prisoners as part of the punishment. And, um, and it's, it's really hard to be in that space and not feel, uh, you know, the kind of weight of, you know, just kind of the, I don't know, the kind of sadness and violence of, 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 uh, you know, that place. And I, I actually talked to somebody who had worked every year. They do a kind of haunted, it's, it's, it's no longer being used as a prison. There's not actual prisoners in there, but, you know, they still sort of open it up in, in the fall for like a, you know, haunted house kind of thing. And I, I knew somebody who worked there, uh, and he talked to me about how at the end of the shift, uh, you know, whenever the last tour was at 11 o'clock at night or whatever, people just could not wait to get out of there. There was nothing that there was no sense of like you were going to hang out after the, the place had closed with your buddies and, you know, have a beer in the break room or something like that. People just wanted to get the hell out of that place. And I think that 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 place left me with such a deeply unsettled vibe. I don't know. I don't know exactly how else to, to describe it other than it just it felt it felt bad in that place. How much of a haunting relies on the history of a location or, or particularly maybe uh, a story that comes from the history? It doesn't even necessarily have to be factual. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I, I found so interesting is, you know, as I was saying, in a lot of cases, um, a place will start, you know, it will get its reputation just because, you know, somebody saw some shape or somebody saw something or heard something or some noise showed up on a, you know, recording or, uh, you know, a face showed up in a, in a photograph and, you know, and, and from there, you know, it becomes a question of, you know, well, who, who could that have been? What, you know, and, and, 
you know, I, I've certainly talked and, and met some people who were pretty serious historical researchers who really, you know, set out to learn, and they would sort of scour old newspaper archives trying to figure things out. Um, you know, and I met other people for whom that was less important. It was just sort of they got some sort of verification that there was something there, you know, and that was that was good enough for them, or that was, you know, um, you know, at least enough for, for what they were trying to do. And, of course, I met other people who had even wilder, more sort of, you know, complicated hypotheses. Well, maybe it was a wormhole that opened up, you know, it wasn't even a ghost. It was a sort of time portal, and you, for a glimpse, saw somebody from the 1920s, and that's what's that, you know. So, I, you know, again, I think what, what was fascinating for me is meeting so many different people at so many different approaches to what they were doing and, and different ways they saw, you know, the, the, I don't know, the science or the parascience or whatever behind what they were doing. Are you going to be telling ghost stories for tomorrow night? Uh, yeah, I hope to. Yeah, I, I, I have a, a Christmas Eve party, and I don't know that uh, the other folks know that I'm going to be doing that. But yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. I uh, I, I haven't done it in a while, but for for years I used to host a, a ghost uh, telling uh, ghost story telling party. And at first, everybody thinks it's kind of cheesy a little bit, and you know, people are a little uncomfortable. But once it gets started, man, everybody's got a story, and you know, by the end of the night. Everybody just can't wait for their turn to, to tell the thing that they saw or the thing they heard or the weird noise or the weird music. Everybody's got one, and it's cool to just see even kind of your most skeptical, non-believing friends will, will eventually kind of bust out with one of those cool stories. So it's, it's super great. I'm looking forward to it, and I, I hope other people start to do it, too, because it's a really cool thing to do on Christmas Eve. Colin, we're out of time. Where can people get a hold of your book and find out more about your work? Uh, so uh, it's it's pretty widely available. Check out you know your local bookstore or you know online if that's your thing. And uh, yeah, uh, Ghostland is it's around. And I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram and, and Twitter, just my full name. So you know people should uh, feel free to drop by and say hi and you know share a story or two. Great. Well, have yourself a merry Christmas and look forward to having you back on the show at some point. Yeah, thank you so much for for having me on. This is super fun. Listen, one more time, I just want to remind you that um, as of the end of this week, we will no longer be a terrestrial radio program. We are moving the program to an all-digital delivery system. It is the media of the future. It'll give us more creative control and more control over our time slot, all of those things. So if you're listening on a radio station, please be sure to go to YouTube because that'll be our primary streaming mechanism. Go to YouTube, search for JV Johnson, subscribe to the channel. That's where you'll be able to see the show and listen to the show live. Also, the show will be available as a downloadable podcast, as it is now on all major podcast platforms. All right, I'm going to leave you with this uh, this Christmas song. Um, it's, I don't know, it's not our best work, but I think it's still a little bit of fun, and it uh, kind of it talks about some of the things that we do here on the program. Thanks f- for everybody being here. Have a very Merry Christmas, you two. Orion, have a great Christmas, and um, we'll see you uh, after Christmas, right? Yeah, yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Entercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.